I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today with me, Sean Park. And Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Nice to see you. Absolutely. And it is your evening time. So I've had a couple of folks from Australia on the show or New Zealand, and I will say that it's always a huge pain in the neck to schedule. And it is always the people in Australia that accommodate the U.S. calendar. So I really appreciate you making the time. Just as a quick background, Sean is the managing director and founder of Hall Road Investments an Australian-based family firm specializing in family office investments, operations, and technology. So before we get into kind of what you're doing and how I found you or how you Mm -hmm. kind of came on my radar, we'd love to get a little bit of background and and how you got into the family office space originally. Yeah, sure. So I'm ex-State Street Global Advisors. So those familiar with State Street, big Boston-based asset management business, I ran the exchange-traded fund business for them in Australia when I lived in Sydney. I now live in on the West Coast in, in Perth. And so my role within that was to, to run the ETF business for them across distribution and things like that. But part of that remit was institutional clients, so asset owners. Over here, we'd probably call them pension funds and, and what we call industry super funds, you know, similar to Kausters and things like that, but and sovereign wealth funds. So that was my client base and family offices sat within that that remit because they are asset owners. They do, you know, they have a multi-asset class portfolio a lot of the time. They used our 1940 Act funds out of the States and they used its funds out of out of Europe as well as the Australian funds. So I had quite a, a broad remit there. And I ended up running the business and then moved into the institutional client group and was head of family offices at, for the institutional client group. So across all the, the, the you know, the, the multi-asset class, fixed income, cash, currency, equities, advice, overlays, and things like that. 
for family offices and endowments and insurance plants. So yeah, that's that's how I got involved with with family offices. I've been dealing with them probably since 2012 and continue to do so. And at your time at, at State Street, were you just yeah. covering Australia or what was the geographic coverage area that you had? Yeah, just Australia. Very specific rules around sort of who you can and can't talk to. But it was interesting because they did use offshore funds and institution clients, multi-asset class, total return funds would use an emerging market debt fund that was listed in London or something like that. So broad range of, cl- of funds across the whole State Street business, but yeah, Australian clients only. And one of the reasons I was excited to have you on is we have a lot of family office folks on the show, but they're almost always oriented towards North America, you know, yes. specifically US and Canada. We've done a little bit of European exposure, but I love getting the perspective of somebody kind of outside the state. So from your kind of background and calling on these folks, is the concept of a family office kind of outside of an operating company relatively new in Australia, or is it something that's been around for a long time? I mean, was this something that you were aware of? You started State Street in 2012. Yeah. What was the state of the family office ecosystem at that point? Yeah, it was, it was nascent. It was very, very new. I think the, the terminology might have been different. And, and sometimes you weren't really dealing with the family office themselves. You were dealing with a family that was using an intermediary. And so really when it wasn't really a family office conversation, it was, uh, we're looking for a particular exposure. This is the client and the client happened to be a corporate and, and looked after the assets for a particular family. So you didn't really always know. I mean, there are some quite older, you know, well-established family offices in Australia, some of the older families, and they were set up more from a philanthropic perspective, I believe, you know, rather than purely as an investment piece or to, to aggregate and to keep the family members together. You know, I dealt, I, and I continue to deal mostly with sort of Gen 1, 2, and 3, you know, not necessarily much further down the track than that. Still very, you know, very aware of where the asset, you know, where the wealth came from, very aware of the who made that initial, you know, the, the or started the business and things like that. So it's a, a relatively new term. I still have to explain it, you know, to, to well, to my parents, obviously, but, you know, to even to people that sit within sort of financial services. And I think it's, it's more about trying to create a, almost a, a definition for people all the time. It's like, what, what is a family office and what is a family office? How does it differ from just someone that's looking to, you know, pull the assets or sit on, sits under a trust structure or something? I think it was potentially used as a branding tool a lot of the time as well. And we're starting to see that with, you know, family office services being popping up a lot. But yeah, ultimately, I think it's still quite a, a, a new term, but it has been around for, for a fair while. Yeah, in particular Melbourne and Sydney, I think, in the longer term ones. So I'm curious, what is the definition that you give to people who, you know, aren't in the financial services space? Maybe your parents, if they, you know, yeah. in the world. Well, it's usually, you know, a, a, an entity, like a corporate entity set up to manage the assets of a, of a single family. And, you know, an office is a, just another name for a corporation. Right. And this is a family corporation that is there just to manage the assets of a particular family, single family office, multi-family office. But, you know, I work predominantly with single family offices and that is very clearly the role of the, of the corporate structure. Like this is G1, G2, G3. The idea is that they're trying to take the assets together or they use it as a, you know, being able to invest directly under some level of anonymity or it's, it's 
for, you know, all the things that we have in terms of why you would set up a corporate structure rather than just give it to one counterparty. So yeah, that, that tends to be the way that I, I define it for people in, in, and for people that are in asset management and wealth management that I talk to, and that's quite, you know, every day. It's around, well, who's going to be your counterparty? Your counterparty is going to, or your client, your client is going to be a corporate client. It's not going to be an individual. So, and it might have very different names and different trust structures and different complexities. But yeah, ultimately that's the way that I, I frame it for most people. And so what was the catalyst to, to leave what is a huge global bureaucratic firm to go out and do something entrepreneurial? And it looks like based on the homework I did, it was in that 2019 time frame. Interesting, in retrospect, an interesting time to make a move like that, obviously. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, sometimes I've always wanted to have my own firm, right? And I think one of the, the, the struggles with that golden handcuff of working for a very good business that you enjoy and things like that is that you do say, oh, next year I'm going to look into it or next, you know, the next, but, you know, it was kind of forced upon me by, you know, the, the, by State Street Global Advisors and say, well, you know, you, I was on the other side of the country. And that was fine. I was there for seven years and that was a great time. I had a lot of, still continue to have a lot of respect for that business, but it is a very big bureaucratic business. And I'm on the West coast of, of Australia, which if you're not aware is, is very mining and resources oriented as a, as a, as a state and as a city and not a big calling for institutional asset management skill sets. And so I, and I've always wanted to start my own firm. So I started a ball road four years ago this week, actually, which is nice timing. And I've always wanted to, I guess, remove a lot of that bureaucracy and actually try and build something that I was very happy just to continue to do all day, every day for the rest of my career. So that's the way that I've sort of structured it. And so far, so good. And, you know, building a good client base and a client base that I enjoy working with, which is not always easy and, you know, is a struggle continuously to sort of make sure that the revenue and things like that. But ultimately that was the aim. The aim was to build a business that I enjoyed working for. Yeah, it's it's admirable, especially given what's happened the last two years. And like I said, I've had a number of people from Australia on the show mm. during lockdown and it was obviously pretty hardcore for everybody. Yeah, um, Perth was kind of, yeah, Perth was a bit strange though. I'm not sure if you're aware, but Perth, we didn't really get locked down here. They They really just locked down the state to a certain degree. So we had a relative amount of freedom. It was actually quite good in terms of new business, didn't have a lot of expense, like a lot of money to spend on flights to the other side of the country to see clients. So whilst people were very amenable to Zoom calls and to take on, you know, take a risk on a new business in just over Zoom and things like that. So it was actually quite, it was okay. But, but, you know, going over there now and seeing clients is just so much better. And, you know, from a business development perspective, it's a lot yeah, easier. Yeah, I guess I didn't appreciate that. The people that I had on, I think, were mostly in Sydney, Melbourne. Melbourne. In particular, had a, had a rough and time. And they were, I mean, this guy was, this one particular guy, I think, this must have been a year, year and a half ago. Mm. I mean, he said he hadn't left his house in three plus months. It just sounded terrible. Yeah. So we were very lucky from that perspective in person that we didn't, we didn't really get locked in very That's much, good. maybe two or three weeks at the most. I think, yeah. So... You know, when people start a business, I know I've asked myself this question, but mm. what problem are you solving in the marketplace? What issue did you see that you thought I can bring the solution set here? I can build a better mousetrap and people will give me their time, money, resources in exchange for that. 
Yeah, it's and I mean that's that's kind of the toughest thing, right? Which is, to, you know, you get that Venn diagram or hedgehog or whatever you want to call it, which is that overlap between what what you enjoy doing, what you're good at, and what people will pay for. And when I left State Street, I, I had very close relationships with a couple of very sort of sophisticated and family offices in Perth and Sydney. And I talked I talked to them. I said, "Where is where is the current challenge?" Because I, I really wanted to remain within the family office sector because I liked them as an asset owner. I liked their ability to really be flexible and dynamic and to, to do what they wanted to, to a certain extent, right? And so I talked to them around sort of what their their main challenge was. And, you know, even though we say there's what you meet one family office, you meet one family office, we've all heard that before, where there is significant homogeneity or where there's, you know, where people do seem to have that same issue is around the infrastructure, around the investment infrastructure. So when I mean, when I say that, I mean reporting, data aggregation, you know, what we would probably call operational challenges. When we see family offices in particular initiate or are going through a review or thing, something like that, you talk to them and a lot of the time it's like, what's your biggest challenge? And the biggest challenge is taking all these idiosyncratic data sets, aggregating them securely, removing a lot of the manual componentry and really being able to analyze the portfolio in, in some form of real time across, you know, multiple parts of the business, across finance, across, you know, investments. And, and that was the challenge across the board. So the business kind of, and that's where I'm really interested. So I was always interested in sort of the software and things like that. And, and coming from the ETF business and ETFs kind of sit within all piping networks. So you understand from, you know, the most simple to the very sophisticated platforms, they all have to, you know, ETF sat within all of them. So I had to understand them anyway. And I come from more of a front office for, for want of a better term, you know, distribution and capital markets. But I, I've also spent quite a lot of time in middle office and back office. And, and one of the, one of the challenges with, family offices is being able to articulate those operational issues with people that have never actually had to deal with them. You know, if they come from an institutional client base or asset manager, you know, the magic fairies come and the, the data's just there and it's, you know, it's very easy. They don't really tend to think about what goes into that. So they're, they're very challenged a lot of the time where they go, well, I, I want to see this. And I thought, well, you, you know, that, that's a challenge that we try to have to solve for. So that you know, a third of my business, really, or maybe even more. It's probably what I'm known for more, which is just being at that front of the operational invest, investment infrastructure piece, technology, you know, all, all the things that are, you know, if you don't have the staff and things like that, it can be a challenge to, you know, curate a really effective office. So that's, that's, that's generally what happened. Yeah, and obviously technology has fundamentally changed financial services and continues to do so. Mm. Within the family office space, I've heard a lot recently about virtual family offices or digital yeah. family offices. You know, multifamily offices are trying to leverage technology to scale efficiently, but still keep that kind of white glove service. I'm curious mm. within kind of your Australian clients, what are you seeing as the biggest challenge or headache that that folks are dealing with when putting in a full-blown tech stack we're trying to kind of bring forward antiquated technology into today's market yeah i mean it's the other the other reason the, the business manifests itself the way it did is because initially you know there was a mid-market for full custodial businesses like custodial banks and you know custody being the way it was when interest rates were very low you know they had to have quite large scale to, to take on a new client family offices kind of sat within that unfortunate gray area between they're not 
RIA slash financial planner kind of client. So you don't get that, you know, you can't have 140 of them and scale it, put it onto an RIA style of platform. And they're potentially not big enough to be institutional or attractive to the likes of State Street and Northern Trust in terms of that full institutional custodial relationship. So you have to try and figure out what that middle ground looks like. And a lot of the time, the challenge is, you know, getting all the data feeds in place, getting all this, you know, the the data sets that come, you know, and as you know, like with, there's a lot of idiosyncratic investments. You've got direct, you've got property syndicates, you've got private market, you've got all these sorts of things. And they all come from in different sort of, especially in Australia, which, you know, a lot of Excel and PDS forms and things like that, or, and everyone's got different portals. So you've got one family office that might have four wealth manager relationships. Each one of those wealth manager managers has a different custodial relationship. And so you've got a portal there and a portal there. So it's the challenge is getting it all in one spot, to be honest. Like that is really the biggest difficulty. And then taking that and removing as much of the manual aggregation as possible. So when you talk to the larger US platforms in particular, they say, well, we've got all these custodial arrangements and data feeds and say, well, you do, but you don't have the Australian ones necessarily. And so the biggest challenge for that is to get that integration, you know, integration to our general ledger style software, which is not the same as the US. It's not the same as Europe. It is quite specific. So the challenge for family offices. And if you're a, you know, if you're a wealth manager looking to have them plug into your virtual family office or your professional services looking to build out a, a family office services, the issue with family offices a lot of time is they are hyper customized. They're very unique and they potentially don't fill the institutional style fee structure or the retail fee structure. And they're kind of in a gray area where you've got to try and figure out where the revenue and the commercial sit. And so from, from Paul Rose, from my perspective, it's usually a, I guess, a trying to create a, an ecosystem rather than a web. So something, you know, all that connective tissue is there, not, okay, we've got this one, this one, this one, this doesn't speak to this, this doesn't speak to this. And we're trying to grab everything that can be quite, excuse me, that can be quite difficult for, for everybody. So a, a big challenge is trying to get it all into working in cohesion and not to have someone having double and triple handle data. And that's, and that's a real struggle. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download. So I'm curious, what have you seen in the U.S. is this, and you referenced it earlier in the conversation, but a lot of RIAs and just traditional wealth management firms, honestly, using the term family office or multifamily office or family office services yeah. as a branding tool where I don't think they fully understand or appreciate what that means. Have you seen that proliferate across the Australia financial services system as well? Yeah, multifamily office in particular, I think is it seems to be a term. Now, I, I mean, I try not to be too precious, right? Which is, I try not to say, well, that's not, that's you know, but in my head, and this is just my definition and people can, can have their own opinion, but a multifamily office is just more than one family that sits with it underneath that, that corporate structure. 
Now, if that family office is actually looking to aggregate and get more money for more, you know, more clients that they're, they're seeking more clients and they charge basis points and transaction fees and things like that. That is a wealth manager. There's a wealth manager model. If you're a multifamily office and you're set up as a multifamily office just to manage the assets of, you know, you see it with founders a lot, right? So they, they might have built a business, sold a business, and then you retain the two or three founders that set, that did that. And they just want to keep this, the assets together. They're not charging necessarily, you know, funds under advice, funds under management fees, then they're just there to aggregate. So wealth manager and multifamily office gets, you know, conflated. Is that the right word? Get confused a lot of the time. And I think a lot of the time it's a branding exercise. It's like, we are a multifamily office. So that's what, that's just, that's not just, that is a wealth manager model. And a wealth management model is incredibly important, but I don't see the problem with just calling it a wealth management model or a private bank model or whatever you want to call it. But as soon as you say family office, you kind of, you know, it does sound more prestigious to a certain degree, maybe, I don't know, but it does confuse the issue and confuse what confuses me. Like, okay, but you've got a hundred clients. I'm not sure how that could possibly be a multifamily office. It's a, it's a very successful wealth manager. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very challenging, I think, to parse through all of that in today's mm. market because I guess the term gets thrown around a lot, I think, without people fully appreciating it. Well, they have it in the name of the firm too, right? A lot of the time they right. you start to see the name of the firm and it's like, well, okay. I'm curious with COVID and the geopolitical situation, especially in China, Hong Kong in particular, Japan is kind of a declining superpower in many ways. There's a lot of talk about families and, and family offices, multifamily offices, larger groups relocating to Singapore and Australia in particular in Southeast Asia. Have you felt that and seen that yourself with other capital kind of humming to Australian families trying to establish roots and systems there and, and, and kind of that capital fleeing some of these other places? Not to Australia, no. I would say that if you're in Singapore, that's what you're seeing a lot of. And you know, you, 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 if you read my newsletter, right, you probably see that it's noted in terms of, you know, those big global family offices like Dyson and, and things like that are setting up or establishing a, either a, a, a proper office or a satellite office in, in Singapore. I think Australia is, whilst very good in terms of infrastructure and tax and it's stable and all that sort of stuff, I think for a lot of people, it's just potentially the time zones are a little bit you know, as we, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night here and I'm talking to you, right? Yeah, so yeah. It, it can be a little bit difficult, but ultimately, I guess it depends on, on what you're trying to achieve. I mean, family offices set up for a lot of the time for lifestyle and things like that. So you see them in New Zealand, people have gone to New Zealand and set them up there. Singapore is, is very popular, you know, moving, some moving from, you know, the European or North American base or, you know, other parts of Asia and putting in Singapore, Singapore is, is very you know, nicely positioned and it's, it's quite an attractive, you know, tax regime for them and things like that. And it's, and it's seen, and there's a lot of very, you know, very good staff and it's concentrated and things like that. And it's a good time zone. Well, it's the same as time zone as Perth, actually, but you know, it's a little bit further north, but we're not seeing a lot of people. I, I, I haven't personally seen a lot of people go, I'm, I'm going to set up my new family office away from the US and for Europe. And it's going to be in Sydney or Melbourne because that tends to be where they would do it. But yeah, I, I haven't. I've seen plenty of them set up in Singapore. That's for sure. Yeah, we've had a couple of folks from Singapore come on, and it's wild 
the amount of capital allocation that's coming there. Yeah. I don't think it's well, it's very stuff. hard to find staff, I think, now as well. Because yeah. it's and um, they changed the rules. I think you need to hire X amount of local people and spend yeah. X amount. They, there's some kind of fee scheme or employment regime set up to because they didn't want to just have like a PO box and assets put there. And so you know, they're having kind of that challenge. Demographics across the world, obviously, is something that we track very closely. I'm sure you do as well. We are seeing this baby boomer generation that we've heard a lot of talk about actually exiting and rolling over assets to the next generation. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing and feeling in that space across your client population? Is it is that transition going smoothly? Are people unprepared? <laughs> is it just kind of coming all of the sudden that there's a lot of a lot of stress around that. What are you kind of getting feedback from across your world? Yeah, I think I think that transition is is a challenge. It's a it's a significant challenge, and especially like I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of the my clients are sort of that generation that either built the asset base or were there while it was built, and so you there is a mindset of you know the person that built it makes a lot of the decisions and things like that, and there is this element of, well, that that's how the decision-making process works. I actually went to a, a very helpful session in Melbourne last week, which was speaking specifically to this. And I think one of the things that came from it was around, you know, you know, stakeholders, all, all stakeholders have to be happy to a certain degree, right? And, and whatever that happiness, wherever that happiness comes from, either it's staying within it or it's removing yourself or being part of the decision process or not, or, you know, all these sorts of things. I think more than anything, people just have to make that communication very clear. You know, it's, it's always tough to talk about money and, and deaths. And it's quite a, it's quite a confronting conversation to have, which is, but it's for everybody, right? Just, it's not just family offices. I think there's just a little bit more complexity just to do with, you know, the number of assets and the potential size of the assets, but having that discussion around what happens when I'm gone and who's going to make the decisions and, and, you know, are we having the right discussions at the right time? I am a massive proponent of engagement of the next generation. And I think one of the things that I'm, I love about being part of the administration piece or the infrastructure piece is that it is much easier to engage with a good reporting structure that is there that actually tells you the story, that provides some color around why we're investing, what we're doing, what we're exposed to than a spreadsheet that only one or two people understand or it's reams of charts and things like that. So I think part of my role within the infrastructure, but I also sit on investment committees and advisory committees for families. And I'm probably what you'd call, well, I term myself like a critical friend, right? That's that's generally the role that I, I take. I'm not an executive within the family office generally, and I'm not a family member, but I am another set of eyes, another set of ears. And, and a lot of the time I'm saying, my role is to say, are, are we going? Are we going down the track that we said we were supposed? To, what we were going to is the investment policy being matched? Are we matching the risk profile? But also, where is everybody? You know, we're having these monthly meetings. Where is where is everybody, and and are they engaged? Because it's not going to stay static. So yeah, it's it's a challenge, but I think it's a challenge that everyone needs to start addressing and and talking to each other about because we we all see the potentially negative components that can happen if you don't have that conversation sooner rather than later. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, in the States, we'd call that a Dutch uncle, somebody who's kind of like in the family, but not in the family who can come into the meeting and be mean and then go away. 
or be not yeah, and, but be honest, right? And just tell people kind of what they need to hear, maybe not what they want to hear. Exactly. Yeah. And and like I said, I'm 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 a a, a good person to have around in terms of sort of saying, well, you know, I'm I'm happy to speak my mind because I'm I'm not looking to I I am there once a month and my, and I'm not the investment I'm not deep in the weeds investment person I'm not that deep in the weeds on, on those components I'm a what you'd probably call a, a the generalist right so I'm a my specialist is generalist if that's not oxymoronic and and really it is around sort of being that person that's been across a other families and saying best practice and but also being part of these decisions you know having been part of these decisions in a big asset manager, but also, you know, in with other families as well, which has been helpful. So let's, as we kind of wind this down, let's talk about the newsletter and your work on LinkedIn, mm. because that's how I first flagged you. You put together a fantastic newsletter. How did that come about? How much work does it take? I know from personal experience, committing to doing that and not missing a publishing date is a big deal. And so I'd be mm. curious, kind of, you put together some great stuff. Yeah, I'd love to hear kind of the, the story behind that. Yeah, so my first, well, one of my first roles in finance was to do the overnight market updates for the, the, the institutional stockbrokers that I worked for. And I've always enjoyed writing. It's like one of those things that I've always enjoyed ever since I was at school. And when I left State Street, I had, a, I had maybe five or to 10 clients, ex-clients that I wanted to stay in contact with. And I had, you know, obviously reached out to them and and asked if I could send them, you know, just a, a a fortnightly missive about things that I'd seen because that was part of my job as a relationship manager, right? Was to understand what they want to see and then took that information and sent it on to them. I really just sort of taking that idea of relationship management and and turning it into something that's a little bit more not not as specific to each client, right? And so that was 10 people and that was four years ago and that was number one. And we're up to number 98. I think we're now today. And it's every two weeks. And it's the same thematic. It's called the Sherpa newsletter, which, you know, is sort of leans into that thematic of a guide. And, and I like that. And really it's it, the discipline is I just find things. I email them to myself and then I write about it as, and on the Thursday, I send it to my licensee to make sure that they're okay with me, what I've said. And then I send it out to the thousand odd people that I send it out on the, on the Fridays through my CRM and. It's incredibly humbling because I get a lot of really good feedback on it. And I think maybe that's just, I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just really trying to just, you know, provide some, in my own voice, some color around what is happening in the family office sector globally. It's not just an Australian sort of thematic, as you probably know, it's, it's quite global, but it's, it's niche, right? It's, it's, it's very family office. So if anyone's interested in family offices, anyone says, oh, you know, can I have some more information around what you do and things like that? So the first thing to do is probably subscribe, get a few of them, and then you'll understand sort of what I look at, who I talk to and what I, what my thought process is. And, and if you're interested in having conversation because you think I might be helpful, then, then that's not a bad way of doing it. Yeah. Highly recommend finding Sean on LinkedIn and just DMing him or finding a way to get on the newsletter distro list because it is really good. Yes, and just whole road the website, just whole yeah, road. And yeah, we'll include something in the in the show notes as well. Um, yeah. And it's a testament to, you know, when you talk to people about how'd you start your newsletter, how'd you start this podcast? You just put yourself out there and you mm. provide good content that's helpful and then like good things happen, right? So now we're having this conversation you'll get exposure to my networking community and it's really pretty powerful. And it, it's, it is really helpful, especially again, to get the perspective outside the US, which I always really enjoy. 
because it's very, uh, the U.S. obviously very noisy media world. So to get that some, a little bit outside is really helpful. So yeah, if you could call out again the website, how to get the newsletter and yeah, sure. maybe give kind of the elevator pitch on if a family is listening, what is the right time or what's the right fact pattern to get you involved as a consultant or an advisor? Yeah, so the, the newsletter is just is the, probably the first thing you will see on the main page on hallroad.com.au, which is H-A-L-L-R-O-A-D.com.au, and you'll see it there. It's just straight registration. It's free. And like I said, it comes every two weeks. The last one was sent today, so the next one will come in two weeks' time. So, you know, the usual catalyst for people to reach out to me around sort of an engagement on the family office side is around either they're starting in a family office and they're you know, they're looking to structure that investment office from reporting and, you know, that, that very much around sort of operational pace, you know, it, if they've got an investment committee or that, you know, from an investment perspective, how is that all going to plug together and what's the best practice there? I do, there's a module that is usually the best way of doing it, which is really around a workshop or which is concentrates on the reporting piece just because that tends to be where everything cascades down from, but that is relatively flexible. So that, that tends to be the way that people engage me on this part of the business, which is just getting something that can be practical, implementable, and, and they can go and you know, use it with their other trusted advisors or if they do it looking to do it themselves. It's kind of a funny business model because ultimately I want to become redundant. Like the the redundancy is, is the objective because if I've done my job correctly, then the infrastructure should be in place and they should have the agency and the self-directed components to do it themselves and and, and, to, and for trusted advisors to be able to assist them as well. So yeah, that's, that's really how it works. Well, it's terrific. And I want to thank you again. Please, My all pleasure. of our listeners, you know, leave us a review. Let us know the, your favorite part about the conversation with Sean. And I especially want to thank you for carving out time. It's late your time. It's on, okay. Especially, I think it's Friday night, you, right? Friday so night at 10.30. Would, you'd, would you'd I really rather be doing anything else? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you'd rather be doing a lot of other things, but I'm glad we could finally make this work. No, this has been great. One final question. We do ask people to come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I do actually. I'm not sure if you ever read Four Thousand Weeks that that book, mm. which was always you know I, I listen to. I listen to it a couple of times just because it's quite it's quite good to to reestablish that idea that you know life is finite and there's not a lot to be said for doing things you don't want to do whilst in such a short period of time. But one thing I sort of developed from that was in the mornings I just I, I really just sort of try to calm down for 15 minutes and put my timer on and then think about what the perfect day could be like. Not necessarily this is going to be the perfect day, but if I think about what I'm trying to achieve and, and the way that I'm trying to construct my life and my, with my family and, and things like that, which is what, what would that look like? So and that was nice and calming and, and gives me some inspiration for what I'm trying to achieve even when it sometimes gets a little bit tough. So yeah, that, that tends to be what I do. That sort of calms me down and gives me a little bit of and it's nice, right? Because if you close your eyes and think about it hard enough, it, it's almost there. But it's good. No, that's great. Thank you for sharing. I mean, it's, it's a terrific book. Another one kind of along the same lines, Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll check, have a look at that one as well. Check it out. Yeah, he's yeah. A, he was a really successful natural gas energy trader in Houston. He just has this way of thinking about how to like allocate time and money on based on different phases of your life or seasons of your life. Yeah. Same idea as like 4,000 weeks in terms of you have very limited where your like physical abilities, your time and your money all interact differently. 
Anyways, if you enjoyed that, you should check out Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. Die With Zero, I will. Yeah, I liked the 4,000 weeks bit because it was, I don't know, it, it was good because it was written by a guy that realized that time management was such a, a fool's errand almost, right? Because you, you save time and, and it gets filled with something else. So you just got to try and make sure that I think living the way that, you know, is, is going to make you that you know, the most like, satisfied and, and try to get happy as possible. So, yeah, like doing podcasts on a Friday night. Well, oh, Sean, thank I'm, you for- I really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us. Please, everyone listening, do pleasure. check out the newsletter. It's terrific. We'll include all the show notes. Sean, Great. thank you so much for joining us. No, pleasure. Best, best of luck moving forward. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.